Warning, this podcast contains scenes of explicit nonsense and lore. Previously on the Resident Evil podcast. This canonicity we, we nitpick so brutally in the West is ultimately a much more of a uh, sort of placid thing for them. I am, and I was going to thank Umbrella because I think he's given me the opportunity to perhaps get more than zero. The English script is the canon, as it were. Like, I wrote my script first. Who tipped off Miranda about Rose and Mia? Do you have an answer for that? Because it doesn't get addressed in the game. Do you know what the plan for that was? I don't have an answer I can tell you. Welcome to episode 71 of the Resident Evil podcast. Acrobatically kicking zombies since 2012 whilst trying to cover up all the insidious activities of the US government. I'm Nick, better known as Neptune. Let's see who's joining us today. He's the hero of Lancashire in the flesh. It's the Batman. Hello there. He's so fearful, he's slowly mutating into an asparagus. It stars Tyrant. Hello. He's remained sane in the Resident Evil community by taking inhibitor chips for the past 25 years. It's Rombie. Hello. Fear. Oh, we all know where that leads. An afternoon with George Trevor. All my life, I have been searching for the root of terror. I think I may have found it. <laughs> and joining us as our special guest, his bio says he's itchy and he's tasty. It's CVX Freak. Hello. How's it going? Thank you so much for joining us. So coming up on today's podcast, we'll be looking through the new CGI series slash movie, however you want to interpret it, Resident Evil Infinite Darkness, which was released on Netflix. It's the fourth canon entry into the CGI franchise, and we'll be digging deep and discussing all the best bits and the worst bits of the uh, new entry. We'll also be catching up with our guest, uh, Alex CVX Freak, following on from his worldwide release of itchy and tasty book, as well as a quick insight into the views coming out of Japan. Before we do that, let's start with the news. Not too much since our last podcast. The main bit has been that Reverse has been delayed until 2022. I can hear the collective, oh no, from the community as we announce that. No new date has been given other than 2022. It was due out this month in July, uh, but it's been pushed back uh, in order to improve the final product. Good or bad thing, chaps? Good thing. No doubt about it. Definitely (laughs) a good thing. Did you enjoy the open beta? I actually did. I mean, it has the depth of a puddle, but it's surprisingly <laughs> fun because of it, I think. It is. That was my view. That was actually... It, it knows what it is, and it's not trying to be anything else other than a stupid, stupid shooter. Completely. Right. The longer it takes time to make it a bit more fun, 
bit more accessible, fantastic. Yeah, I've, I've got no issue with these games at all. You know, I'm not going to get sniffy about it. It's not, you know, survival horror. And I think that's a good point because I've heard the Oracle Dragon has made, you know, she knows her gaming and she's played it extensively and reviewed it. And that was a point that came across from her was that it is it is fun if it can do things correctly in the same way that Operation Raccoon City did some of those, those that kind of multiplayer correctly, then yeah, it, it's keeping that gameplay out of the main titles and... <laughs> I think it's great. I don't know if it's bravery, but when, you know, when a, a production company can say, you know, when Capcom can say, you know, we're delaying something so that we can get it right, then then I definitely support that. Especially since it's a free game with Village, it means they don't really have much to gain financially from delaying it, but it shows that they care. And I think it's, it's better than them rushing it out. But it, it does make me wonder because it's a 25th anniversary game and it's mm. now coming out the following year. Also, am I right to think, because that seems to be the takeaway that not just to celebrate the 25th anniversary it was almost like the showcase thing this is the big surprise you know that we were all waiting for so there's nothing else coming i think it was a pretty weak 25th anniversary celebration no to be seen i guess you know there's still there's like tokyo game show who knows if we'll have something there for something else well they could just do another online stream event you know again i mean technically the 25th year goes through until the end of march next year so you know they've still got time i guess i would guess then that reverse comes out before march 22nd 2022 Mm. so they can stick to that 25th anniversary branding absolutely i think it would be outrageous if we didn't see anything else for the 25th anniversary yeah Mm. i mean but this is this goes back to the question and we brought this up you know when when this was announced like we, we were trying to date the other game releases around anniversaries and so forth but like is this really a, like should this be worth an anniversary release as well like you guys are talking about it as if it's you're being kind of passive to it like gt's just saying like oh it's keeping it out of the main game and, and you know alex is like it's about the depth of a puddle you know like is that a good way to celebrate the 25th <laughs> anniversary i mean village and infinite darkness were very much the the main two things that they're doing and and then there's that other movie coming out at the end of the year, I think, mm. with the, the live, the live action, action movie. Mm. So it may be the Netflix it's series like, before April. Uh, Resident Evil 4 VR. So it's not like there isn't a lot of other stuff going on. I just I would not put Reverse as the tent pole of the anniversary. It's just more like and, and that's, thing that that's where I think for it. I think I would have understood if it was more that, but it didn't seem like it. Like when you use that artwork that then you reveal is for part of Reverse, and like that's how you announce it. It's like that seems like you're making that like the thing and it's like mm. and especially when you look at what street fighter got for like it's 25th and 30th like yeah, yeah. i wonder still i wonder if covid had any impact on that or if they have other mm. stuff planned and it's not showing their whole hand yet who knows right <laughs> and the heck too let's not yeah. forget what game um was blessed with the 20th anniversary logo <laughs> do we have to <laughs> no yeah, Corps, I I mean, remember. yeah the anniversary years aren't usually i mean some of them are fine like i thought the fifth anniversary was pretty i was cool. gonna say the, the fifth is probably still a highlight I'm, I'm, 21 20 years ago 20 yeah 20 years ago right uh, yeah. i thought that was cool when they did code veronica on ps2 and they did wesker's report that's, cool. well, that's the, the thing the i was gonna say anniversary from the collector's gorgeous yeah oh yeah i love that thing Batman, did you have any comments on uh, Reverse? Um, I honestly haven't. Um, I've not played it. It's just, it's not really my cup of tea. So I'm just a bit old school in that regard. I'm in Resident Evil for the horror and the single player scares. So it's not really my, my sort of game. But, you know, I'm sure plenty of people will enjoy it when it eventually does come out.
that's the uh, end of main gaming news. But whilst we're here, there has been some uh, other Resident Evil news and the uh, the release of Itchy Tasty in America, which has come out this month. And lo and behold, we're joined by its author. <laughs> Who would have thought? There we go. Perfect timing. So, Alex, congratulations on uh, now the worldwide release of Itchy Tasty. It is done as far as, as far as I can tell uh, extremely well, and it's gone down you know very well in the in, in the community. As someone who kind of follows a lot of the Facebook groups as well, there's loads of posts going. Look what I've got! Look what I've got! You know, and it, it's getting a lot of, a lot of praise and hype. And of course, other parts of the world, we've had it a bit earlier, so we've been enjoying the the fruits of your labour for the past couple of months. And I'm delighted that um, it's being so well embraced by the the RE community as a whole. Yeah, thank you. Uh, those are very kind words. It's been it's been a very overwhelming response just all around. Just about as universally positive as I would have liked. And yeah, I mean, actually had I'm here in Germany, but somebody reached out on Twitter wondering if I could meet that person and sign his copy of the book. And so yesterday I actually ended up doing a little personalized signing session and, you know, getting getting feedback about the book. And it's been great. And I, I, I'm really enjoying uh, all of the messages that I'm getting from people, especially the photos where the books come in and people are really happy to have it. <laughs> it must be really special, like going into a bookstore and actually seeing something you've written on the shelves. You know, I imagine that's a that's really, really to good feeling. Yeah, that's that that part has yet to happen because um, obviously it, they're not going to sell the English version in the average Tokyo bookstore. And I don't know if there's a bookstore in Germany that would have it at the moment. I mean, I can't wait till I get to the US or visit the UK and see if I can find a copy on the shelf and take a photo with it. <laughs> What's been your overall perception of, so the, you said the positive, the feedback's been mainly positive, mostly positive. Yes. 99% positive, pretty much. Because of the, the feedback that you've had, is there a, a lingering itch, pardon the pun, in your mind to go, ooh, we might be able to do another one? Oh, I would, I would love to do another one. Absolutely. And I think under normal circumstances, doing another one would be a no-brainer because the, the feedback for the first volume has been very positive. So so it's it's not a matter of not wanting to do it. It's just that I, I, know, I know I've mentioned this before, but luckily all the directors of the first four Resident Evil games and the outbreaks and whatnot, Zero, they've all they've all left Capcom. So it's easy to get a lot of the insight that they normally wouldn't talk about in a typical interview. But everybody, pretty much everybody from Resident Evil 5 onward still works at Capcom. So, you know, if, if I were to talk to them, it would be very much a supervised kind of conversation. And sure. I'm not sure if I can get all the insight that I would want, you know, for, for a second volume that has the same approach as the first one. That That's the biggest challenge. I, I, I will admit that I actually have written parts of the second volume already. <laughs> Uh, they've actually been written for quite a while. It's just that without that same level of direct access to a lot of the creators, um, I'm not sure the book sounds as interesting as as it could be. So I'm I'm just giving it a little bit of time to see kind of where the winds blow as far as you know Capcom's willingness to maybe collaborate on an official level or some other way, uh, or if I can talk to other creators who've left Capcom that worked on Resident Evil Five and onward. Um, and and they're 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 out there, but it, it would oh yeah. There's nothing like talking to a 
director or producer on a Resident Evil game. So that's why it, it's a big challenge, but I, I do want to do it. Well, there we go. Uh, a scoop for you, but yes, yeah, so you could always track down uh, Mr. Fabiano now working at Bungie. He could be on your huh. list. Yeah. I, th- I think everyone in the RE community would love to speak with him about his involvement in the series the past couple of years. So oh, there we yeah. Go. He, was, he was around for a long time. So, you know, he, he definitely really would be could. someone who probably has a lot of great stories to tell about the development of Resident Evil since RE5 was released. So, but yeah, I think he, he made a really big move recently. And I, I think we should all wish him the best of luck. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, we, we did in the last podcast, actually. Um, his, his legacy and impact. So, uh, yeah. Absolutely. If you could get an interview with him, Alex, that would be, uh, I think a lot of people would be quite interested in reading what you, what he would have to say. You know, I've, I've known Pete for quite a while and he, I would say he definitely had a tremendous impact on how the series, you know, evolved in the past few years. And I guess he was partly responsible for its gradual internationalization over the past few entries. So mm. I think his contributions aren't to be underestimated. And I believe he was one of the first non-Japanese producers in the company. So he, along with, I think, Matt Walker, they definitely left their mark at Capcom. Well, that does finish all our gaming news. We now quickly move on to site news. Uh, firstly, we'd like to thank all our new patrons. So a uh, big thank you to PC Worth, Player J, Andrew Nichols, John Cornford, and Dan Govert. Many thanks for your uh, support. That's It means the absolute world to us. And if anyone's interested, just head over to our Patreon page. You may have noticed in the past couple of weeks, we have actually passed a, a bit of a milestone here at Rep. A quarter of a million individual downloads for our podcast which we are amazed by so uh, it wasn't long ago where we passed 100,000 and now we're at 250,000 which is uh, incredible and that's from February 2016 uh, as opposed to 2012 because February 2016 is when we started to actually record these via Podbean so yeah it's uh, very very humbling as always and thank you to everyone who uh, downloads and listens to us on a regular basis Uh, we wouldn't be here without you Last bit of site news, people who listened to our last podcast, which was the interview with Anthony Johnson, the transcript of uh, of the key questions asked should now be available on our website. So head on to the features page and some of the key questions that we uh, asked Anthony are there um, so you can read them as well as listen to it. That does finish our site news. We now move on to uh, our sub-discussion and we're going to be speaking about a bit of news we've purposely held back. People may have, uh, who, who follow CVX Freak on Twitter, which is at CVX vx freak uh, he recently posted the sales figures um for resident evil village or, or at least the the news that village has sold 4.5 million copies worldwide making it one of the, the the most popular and successful resident evils to date and yet in japan the sales figures for uh the resident evil franchise as a whole have been declining for some years and i think your tweet alex was probably one of the first times people in the west have gone i mean it's a very complicated thing to explain but i'll, I'll do my best to make it <laughs> easily understandable but historically like when when back in 1996 when resident evil first became a franchise japan was probably the largest or second largest single market for resident evil games popularity 
And obviously the first would be the US in, in some cases, but in other cases, Japan was actually at the top. So in the 90s, I think gaming in Europe was still kind of developing and growing. And that's why that was a much smaller market back in the day. But yeah, nowadays, I think with the with the last few Resident Evil titles, I think Japan's market share is down to maybe 10% or less. You know, we have what, like Resident Evil 7 selling 9 million copies, right? I think in Japan, it sold like half a million copies. So that's not even 10%. And I think the reason this has happened is because a few different things, like I think with Seven and Village, uh, those are in first person. And those are obviously very much focused on the horror elements rather than like the characterizations or the the cartoonish elements of, of Resident Evil games. And I think that doesn't really have as much appeal to the Japanese user base as, you know, games like Resident Evil 4, 5 and 6 did. The other thing that I think is an important thing to remember is that it's a right now it's primarily a PlayStation franchise and it's the Nintendo Switch that has maybe 85 to 90 percent of the market here most gamers in Japan are not interested in owning a PlayStation and therefore the amount of people who will buy a Resident Evil game is probably you know getting less and less which I think is a shame because I mean personally speaking I moved to Japan because I had an interest in Resident Evil and back when the games used to come out there first you know they, they would come out months ahead of time in Japan and when I was younger I'd be unable to read those games so I, I made a personal investment to try and and learn Japanese so I could play Resident Evil games early obviously that's not really a thing anymore they all come out worldwide simultaneously so yeah it's it's a shame that Resident Evil is kind of in Japan anyway its best days are behind it I think in the end it's the best thing that can happen for Capcom because obviously even though they're a Japanese company I think they're very much a globally focused business. And I think that's how they're going to continue to stay relevant. That would be by appealing to Western gamers as best as they can. It's fascinating that the country where this video franchise was born and started, you know, people talk about the roots and, and the godfather of survival horror with Mikami-san. And, and this is where, you know, survival horror very much started and took on, well, you'd think a more, you'd expect a more global reach. Yet now, if it was down to the market that exists in Japan, I wouldn't be, you know, the survival horror that I crave and I've wanted to see and I've been pleased to see return in seven and eight wouldn't perhaps wouldn't have returned because Operation Raccoon City that so derided in the West was a number one in Japan and it's interesting listening to Code Veronica Freak talk about mm. yeah how it's because of the increase in survival horror that it's turned off the Japanese market who bought so many copies of Operation Raccoon City and made it a number one in Japan and it, it's quite sad really mm. I remember was it Batman didn't you import was it remake on one of the first Resident Evil games I remember you talking on a very early podcast didn't you import it and just the excitement that mystique of getting these games from Japan and yeah it's, it's very sad I think way back then there was such a big gap between PAL and NTSC releases I think we got remake something like six months after Japan I think it was September 2002 mm. yeah it was um, yeah. a big thing back in those days to import a game early it kind of ended after four really four was the last one I can remember with like a major delay kind of between well even at least the US one anyway everything else since then's pretty much been day and date worldwide I remember when um, Umbrella Chronicles came out it was actually quite welcome it was only about a week difference I think from the American yeah. EU release oh yeah I mean yeah Operation Raccoon City was actually surprisingly big in Japan but I think that was back when you know like Resident Evil 5 had sold like a million copies here in Japan and I just I imagine one third of them bought Operation Raccoon City because they were still into the franchise yeah it's strange to think that Operation Raccoon City has sold like twice as much as Village I think <laughs> crazy my other question to Alex he kind of answered 
started with the percentages because I was wondering how much would this really resonate with, how much would it concern them that their signature IP for Civil Horror is doing so poorly in, in the land of its birth. But clearly, when you're saying, was it how much, 10% of the sales? Not even, not even 10%. Mm, not even. It's definitely lower than that now. So I imagine it will be of no very, very little concern, I would then imagine. The only reason I would think they would have been concerned is if sales had dipped everywhere, but obviously with US and European sales being quite strong, still a positive, isn't it? It's a, yeah, I would say it's a net positive. You know, obviously Resident Evil 2, the original version, was the top selling Resident Evil game for like a decade. Now that was like 5 million copies. And I think any Resident Evil game that comes out today will easily pass that. And indeed they have. 7, 2 Remake, Village Now... Um, they're all doing very well and, and their numbers are bigger than ever because of markets outside of Japan. I think it makes sense. I mean, I think if Capcom can figure out how to replicate their success with Monster Hunter in making that popular everywhere and not just two out of three territories, then I think they should definitely figure out how to do that because Monster Hunter Rise, that's a one platform game, right? That's only on the Switch and that has sold nearly double of what Village has, which is on five platforms, five or six platforms, right? And the reason for that is because Monster Hunter is huge everywhere right mm. and including japan so that's why i feel like if, if capcom can do that with resident evil then you know it'll it'll be to everybody's benefit right but i obviously that would require capcom to commit to making a resident evil game on the switch and who knows if they'll ever do that right i mean there have been rumors about that but it remains to be seen whether they can pull it off i think monster hunter is successful for capcom on any platform because when they made rise on the switch that's very much a legitimate entry in the Monster Hunter series and I know I, I think Capcom would have to make something even if it doesn't have a number on it on the Switch it has to be very important but not not like low budget Revelation style or Operation mm. Raccoon City style derivative it needs to be like a legitimate legitimate entry in the series with an important story and I would say recognizable characters make it a third person game maybe make it make it a little campier than than the last few games and maybe that's how they 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 kind of find a market in Japan again if i had to guess that's the thing i was going to say i mean and, and you've said it as well obviously the the nintendo platforms in japan are huge right now and and sony itself is not the same sort of platform it was a decade or two back in japan so that's got a, a you know another impact as well and that's a big deal in of itself i mean i jokingly have said it before and, and i was you know i'm going to mention it here as well as i i always thought that the plan to put resident evil on a nintendo platform that happened in the early 2000s was perhaps you know a decade too soon mm. you know you, you could say even sooner you know maybe maybe less than that but had they done that maybe a decade later it probably would have had better benefits than it did in 2002 2003 2004 but you know you can't be right about everything all the time so sure i mean resident evil and, and nintendo have always had an interesting history you know full of ups and downs and i mean you know i don't personally believe that resident evil and nintendo platforms are the perfect match but yeah like insofar as this discussion about the japanese fan base is concerned i do think that's probably the most realistic first step capcom can take you're the type of person who's played differently i've seen play resident evil games you can get on say switch and you know you found it an enjoyable thing that you can play them portably but i don't know if it's the platform of choice you know that people would see as like in the best platform is a only platform mm-hmm. i think in that i was going to ask you one other thing i just thought of as well there was all that fussing online i, I think this is again maybe something more of the west you know taking something and, and reading context in it which was it was one of the one of the producers 
for eight, was it Canada maybe, made the comment about reducing the amount of horror, that it was too scary. Do you think that's a, oh, a worldwide yeah, that's thing? A... Was it a Japanese thing? Was it? Oh, right. In Japan, when Resident Evil Village was about to come out, they ran two different types of marketing campaigns for it that were targeted at Japanese users. And this was made in response to a lot of the feedback that Japanese gamers gave regarding Resident Evil 7. When, when that first came out. The biggest reason, you know, I think one of the questions on the survey was why didn't you play Resident Evil 7? And apparently the a majority of the, I don't know if it was a majority or the highest number of respondents said that it was too scary. Resident Evil 7 was too scary and therefore they didn't play it. Didn't so play apparently it. in in response to that, with, with Village, they, they first had that music video with old school Japanese Enka singer, uh, Yoshi Ikuzo, a very famous guy, very well known. He did the, you know, I mean, I don't know if this is well known outside of Japan, but he, he was known for a song about, you know, he comes from this small rural village in Japan. And, and the title of the song he originally wrote in the 70s or 80s was literally, this kind of village sucks, right, for me, or I hate this kind of village. And they decided to bring Yoshi Ikuzo back. Capcom decided to bring him onto the marketing campaign so he can take that song and change it around so the lyrics reflected Resident Evil Village instead. You know, I, I think that's something that the video did really well. Like, it got millions of yes. views yeah, like, it when did. it first came out. And, and I think think biohazard was a bit of a buzz that that week or so part of the lyrics i mean i know i posted a translation of the lyrics on twitter a while back i mm. have to go back and see what what i wrote about it but it like basically like it, it kind of pokes fun at the game's scary element it tries to make it very lighthearted, and the subtext is that yes village is a scary game but you know there are light-hearted parts about it that you might like you know so you should give it a shot the second marketing campaign definitely went down that path you, you're about to touch on second marketing campaign was the one with the puppets the, the four mm. lords so all the japanese voice actors for those started doing puppet skits <laughs> and the whole thing about the puppet skits is that like they swear like they're telling viewers resident evil village is not scary it's not scary at all you should go play it right and and obviously i think any viewer of those marketing videos will will know that it actually is kind of scary and capcom is kind of fibbing right in in a, in a colorful way yeah i thought that really stuck out because those two like the music video and the puppet campaign are very much in content rather in uh conflict with the nature of resident evil village as we all know we've all beaten it i guess but mm. you know there's there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in that game that kind of pushes the series boundaries so it's amusing in hindsight to see what capcom was trying to do with i don't know if deception is the right word but <laughs> spin it, it was like diversion spin, spin. right spin yeah spin, spin diversion it just almost i hope i'm wrong it almost sounds as if capcom are being apologetic for just to hear that I for making that, seven like, was too scary yeah yeah to hear that easy. phrase you know sure. resident evil being too scary it's almost like fingernails down a chalkboard it, you know the comments that we got translated at least an explanation I'm, I'm not even sure where the source of that was i remember it was everywhere for a while does anyone remember where that mm. was for the west as well there was it was an interview or something and he, he I made think the some justification about... that kawata-san gave at the time was that he i think he went on from that like you said it'd be unfair to 
quote that to take that out of context that quote but it was that he wanted other gamers from different genres to kind of be able to dip into resident evil and not find it so kind of obstructive because it's i mean maybe they might think it's as fearsome as, as silent hill and it just it seemed to be wanted to widen the audience of people that could be attracted and it, find different aspects of the game that they may take away that they enjoy it's almost like it was let's say maybe a decade ago when there when there was a little bit of misunderstanding well not misunderstanding because i don't want to say it's misunderstood at all but with that focus where capcom started trying to say we, we're going to go for the the call of duty gamers and and we ended up with resident yeah. evil 6 because they wanted you know an actiony shootery set pc game that they thought was the right appeal at the time and obviously wasn't but it feels like here yeah, we're, we're trying to expand the market and totally understandably why but not doing it exactly forgetting what the core of what the franchise is that makes it different you know at the same time i mean resident evil 2 remake did really well in japan so i mean the series can still do good numbers i just think for japan anyway they can't really hone in on the horror element too much otherwise they might end up turning people off do you think that having the two versions that you do and exist in japan as far as you know zero uh, ratings does that have an impact as well you may be on that perception i mean possibly it, 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 this is actually something i wish i had data on because when resident evil 2 remake came out the u.s version ended up making it to the amazon japan top 100 the imported version presumably because those people wanted an uncensored version of the games so who knows if there's like a contingent of people who will just buy the, the overseas version from either europe or the u.s or from other asian countries and, and just play that without anything censored i mean i can't imagine the number is very high but it does make me wonder if it can get onto the amazon top 100 you know it's got to be some number of people right that, that won't be reflected in the in, in the official japanese sales figures we get yeah you know on the week basis but even knowing even in japan what they were broken down to if you knew this game sold x numbers of this rating and this x number of this rating you you would probably be even be able to get some sort of picture even at that level let alone the the uncensored versions coming in from overseas yeah i mean i've never seen data on japanese sales for my job but i've never actually seen a breakdown of between the zero z and uh zero d mm. ratings you know what the ratios are i imagine z has the majority of the sales, probably a good three-fourths of it. I wouldn't be surprised if it was as much as 90%, because, I mean, I don't think you would play Biohazard if you didn't like seeing violence to some extent, right? The the Zero D versions are extremely canny. The, the, the lady Dimitrescu, when she cuts Ethan's arm off, his arm stays intact in, in that version, and it's a little unbelievable to watch. And that's saying something for Village, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Slashes his arm, but it's just intact. Like nothing's happened to it. It just becomes unusable, quote unquote, <laughs> rather than detached. So I think what I wanted to kind of end upon was just a, maybe a final thought from you, Alex, just on the, on this point. As an outsider looking in, without knowledge of, say, those sales figures, Japan continues to get so much additional stuff compared to the rest. And I'm not just talking about like the guidebooks and things like that, but, you know, we've seen oh, it's stage, you know, two stage shows, a musical. We've had what Biohazard, the real one, two, and three. You've still got the two. Two VR yeah. experiences, the Resident but, Evil Cafe. It, it all gives off the cafe. Yeah. yeah, it gives off this perception of you know the series is absolutely mega. 
in Japan. Uh, but it's just so interesting. To, you know, it's just interesting to hear that in terms of the actual yeah. you know, the meat, the meat and bones of, of the franchise, those figures are declining. So yeah, basically Capcom has a licensing division and, and they're actually, from my experience, very open to all sorts of collaborations for Resident Evil merchandise. And, you know, <laughs> Capcom being a Japanese <laughs> company, yeah, they, they kind of call the shots, but there, there are licensing and merchandising opportunities in every region. So, but like in Japan, you know, basically at Capcom, it's the producers that have the final say whether a collaboration will go through or not. And I think the reason why we see so many Japanese collaborations getting pushed, you know, is because Capcom as a Japanese company that it's very easy for them to get those discussions and to get those offers. Whereas if something originates in a different country, then, you know, Capcom USA or Capcom CEE, Capcom Entertainment Europe, you know, in London, they have to take that, they have to translate all that information and then relay it over to the producers, you know, that doesn't happen in real time. And I think there's a time lag in, in terms of getting all those approvals in what would the time difference and all whereas in Japan, a lot of these deals, I think, especially the ones related to like the stage shows and the, the theme park attractions, they happen in real time with the relevant producers meeting with, you know, the business people at Universal Studios or at Parco, the name of the department store that hosts the Capcom stores in Tokyo and Osaka. So yeah, that's why I think there, there's a bit of a disparity, despite the fact that Japan is really not the biggest region for the for the franchise anymore. There's a lot more direct control over what happened, right? Interesting. So yeah. yeah, I was going to say as well. Maybe it's also part of that cultural thing too. You know, just local. You know, the cafe, for example, is just because it's a sort of right. like an interesting themed cafe that Japan kind of does do right. things like that. You know, like I, I can't see right. them doing that so easily and say you know the uk is a long-term thing or right. the us japan has the benefit of you know unlike the united states is is a relatively small country geographically and obviously all the action most of the economic and business activity is focused in one place which would be tokyo maybe osaka mm. as well so it's it's not hard to or you know you decide yeah we want to open a capcom cafe or we want to open a resident evil 7 vr attraction there are places in in Japan where it's very easy to lock down that real estate and make those deals happen. If, if you're in the United States, it's like, well, okay, do we do it in New York? Do we do it in LA or San Francisco or Florida? You know, it, it's, it's a lot more logistically challenging to make things like that happen because it's a much larger country. And, and the level of oversight that Capcom's branch offices can give to those, you know, to those collaborations is quite limited, right? Because mm. I, I know that in Japan, they definitely want to see everything that's going on. And so everything kind of has to pass through them. Uh, there's a bit of a chain of command there, right? Mm. Uh, whereas in Japan, it's not quite as hard to get through that. I think another another consideration is that like Universal Studios Japan, that's in Osaka, right? They now have a Super Nintendo world as well, but mm. Capcom often collaborates with them. And I think it literally comes down to the fact they're both in the same city, right? You know, they can easily meet up and, and the Capcom people can go to Universal Studios and help plan these things. The other thing is the producer at Capcom, you've probably seen his name before, uh, Hiroyuki Kobayashi. He He's mm. the one who's in charge of all of the non-game related Resident Evil movies, films, stage shows. And he's obviously a Japanese person and he has relationships with the celebrity industry in Japan. So usually he's focused on, you know, the next CG movie or 
I imagine he's involved in the Netflix series to some extent. Yeah, it's like and what Okamoto was past. back in the day. Yeah, yeah, like like Okamoto and Mikami Son was like that back Mikami in the day for as well. a while. Yeah, so, yeah, that that would be my my explanation for why that mm. is. I, don't, I know that might be a bit of a boring answer to some people, <laughs> but you he's know, it, fascinating. He's, he's also quite the gun yeah. enthusiast, isn't he? Which is why we have all the lore attached to. Airsoft yeah, people. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I think to discuss like how Japanese people perceive the series and, and what they kind of want out of it because obviously you know the creators being Japanese that will always have some kind of an influence you know re regardless of whether Japan is the main target market or not and I think the biggest element for a lot of Japanese gamers is the characters who appear in, in any given Resident Evil product. In in Japan, Leon is easily like the most popular Resident Evil character. Like there's no like competition between him and anybody else, right? Like he is by far the most popular character. And you see that like in, in the merchandising opportunities that, that Leon gets. He's gotten four CG productions, right? You know, center stage. And when Resident Evil 6 came out, he was uh, the biggest feature on the front cover. And it's deliberate when when they put Leon on all these things because they know that he amongst Japanese gamers he has a lot of selling power right the CG films the first three they all came out in theaters in Japan and they needed they needed a character that that would get butts into the theater and you know Leon's kind of the go-to guy for that whereas you know I think Operation Raccoon City was another example of this where you know they they, they kind of played up the idea of killing Leon because, you know, he's such a popular character. If Capcom really does something in Japan, I always think Leon kind of ends up being the face of that. I mean, there are exceptions to that as well. But like, yeah, I think in general, if there's a new CG production coming up, I mean, if Leon's not in it, I would be very surprised. Basically, what you're saying is if they wanted Village to succeed, they needed Leon rather than Chris. Probably, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, don't, I don't think they would want Leon in a reduced role like that either. No. I think it, it would it would actually elicit negative feedback from Japanese gamers. And I think that moves us nicely on to our main discussion. Thank you, Alex, for that insight. I think our listeners will be uh, particularly fascinated as to uh, the view from Japan and that slight nuanced differences between uh, perhaps how the West, as you say, perceive uh, the franchise and how it, the developers of the game make it uh, and what feedback they take upon it. But that does lead us nicely into our main discussion of the podcast. We are, of course, talking about Resident Evil Infinite Darkness. Command, this is Coyote. Seven zero miles northwest of the base. Altitude 1500 feet. Report clearance for land. Coyote 6, this is Command. You're clear to land on runway 3. Wind 50 at 14 knots. Maximum 29 or 74 inches. Lost for chop. Mayday, mayday, we're hit! Losing altitude! Command, this is Mad Dogs. We have a visual on Alpha 2 and it's going down. Tell the other units to stand by. Team 3, Team 6, this is Command. Stand by. Wait, what? I repeat. Team 3 and Team 6. Take us down. Stand by We're gonna go check it out. The militia's converging on the crash site. Alpha 2's under attack. They're totally surrounded. Command, we got eyes on Alpha 2. You're preparing to engage. Negative, negative. You are to stand by. Do not engage. They're firing on the enemy. 
What unit is that? Mad Dogs, sir. God damn it. Tell them to stand down and get back in formation. Command the Mad Dogs. Stand down and return right. to formation. We hit the deck. Line them up with the sauce first. Then we go for the survivors. Got it? Resident Evil Infinite Darkness, the fourth canon entry into the CGI series. Fifth, if you count 4D Executor, and why wouldn't you? But whatever. And we are <laughs> looking again with the return of Leon and Claire back into the fold in a storyline where we're looking at the US involvement, something that's been heavily featured in the series since Resident Evil 6, really, but also it predates a lot of that. So there's that really interesting facet uh, to dissect. And we have. Um, all sorts going on with an alleged uh, Chinese biological facility. Is that involved? And suspicions of espionage and global hacking. It's got everything, Infinite Darkness. But what did everyone think briefly of the title? Is it good, bad, indifferent? So your, your brief thoughts, start with Star's Tyrant. I'm really, really indifferent to it, unfortunately. It's not that I didn't dislike it. It's just that I didn't really particularly feel anything for it as such. I came away with just a great sort of sense of, you know, what is the point? And and unless they elaborate on this with a sequel series or whatever, I'm kind of just sat here going, I didn't really get a great deal out of it in terms of like impact on the canon. I'm sort of kind of confused as to why they chose that year to set it. It doesn't really infer into things any more than potentially Degeneration did with the uh, uh, Tricell Stinger at the end. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now so everyone else can have their piece. But it's not that I didn't dislike it. I just didn't really feel a great deal of much toward it, if that makes any sense. And that could be damning in itself. <laughs> but there we go. Batman, what was your take on all this? I thought it was okay. I mean, it's not terribly great, but I don't think it's the total disaster a lot of people are making it out to be either. I thought it was doing fine up until the moment Jason blew up the Chinese mansion and then it just completely fell apart. Episode 4 was just a disaster and it played like a remake of the third act of Degeneration, albeit nowhere near as good. But there was some good stuff in it. I thought the flashbacks were good, and I liked the circumstances of how the initial outbreak in Panamistan started. But yeah, the whole thing was just very undramatic. It was it was just okay. That's all I can really say about it. Just from my point of view, I'll, I'll come to it. I thought, although we're not going to really talk about it episodically, I mean, let's be honest, it was just one film split into four, but I thought episode one was fantastic. And then <laughs> I kind of agree with Sean and Batman there. It, it kind of progressively got worse and worse, but I thought episode one on its own was very good. Alex, what was your take on Infinite Darkness? Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I'm, I don't hate it, to be honest, but I'm not exactly in love with it either. Yeah, it's it's been a long time since I felt this way about any particular Resident Evil story, but I guess, you know, you appreciate it more if you look at Leon's entire, like, character arc from beginning to end, right? And thinking about it very carefully does make it a lot more interesting in some in some regards. But yeah, kind of as a, as a first-time Netflix, you know, TV series, like, it never really hits a particular high for me. There are a few cool scenes in all four episodes, but yeah, there, there's no, like... I don't know, like in, in Damnation and in Vendetta, there are moments where like like the the, the story kind of peaks and, and you're kind of invested in what's happening, but Infinite Darkness kind of never gets there. It kind of stays flat the whole time and I wasn't really feeling it. 
Rombi, what about you? Better than Vendetta? That's kind of a loaded question. I mean, <laughs> I kind of I kind of liked it more than Vendetta, but only because almost, I know this sounds ridiculous to say this, but almost because of its consistentness and blandness, if that makes sense. Like where Vendetta went really, really wrong was much worse than this did, but at least it had more, yeah, it had ups and downs, whereas this was, it was fine. I'm kind of with the rest of you guys. It was, it was okay, but I didn't, you know, there wasn't, it felt very low stakes. I think setting it where it did kind of tuck away a bit of the impact, the the stinger reveal of the involvement of who's involved, it doesn't it kind of falls flat because we know the history of what's going to happen after this time period. Some of the story writing decisions, I'm just like, why they stood out because they had were so clearly planned because we need to explain why this character got where or why this character in and much like we assumed you know it was mostly all self-contained as well so it wasn't going to refer to other events and other cg the other cg movies or games or you know stuff very little you know so yeah about the same really we went out of its way almost to say oh raccoon city remember it you know, Leon. Mm, that's, uh, that's, that's, City. What? What about the? What about the Harvardville incident last year? Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah. it keeps mentioning the one that is more publicly known for, as far as fans, and and that takes me out of the movie. It's it's like what I've said exactly. before when you we have to rely on something that is more for the audience's recognition than the character's recognition. As Nick, you've pointed out plenty of times, you know, like numerous events, and especially even in these CG movies and other games, have been bigger than the Raccoon City incident. But well, the Raccoon City incident is what we always go back to because it's the one that everyone knows as far as the game franchise is concerned. Look at the three-week ordeal of Terra Grigia, which only happened mm. what, a, year, a year before. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's kind of the strange part. Like, I do think there would have been a great opening to have this as a sequel to Degeneration, right? Like, they didn't have to be so upfront about it, but, like, that couldn't have been more than, like, I don't know, six to nine months before this movie. Yeah, and it has the same starring characters, but they talk like it never happened. And then they kind of mm. talk like they haven't seen each other in a long time, but they only saw each other within the last year. Because I know like the generation was like late 2005, right? And according to the Kobayashi interview that was conducted, this is before Lost in Nightmare. So it had to have been by July-ish at the earliest, right? So it, it's a little unbelievable that. <laughs> it doesn't make sense when Claire goes, look at these pictures. It looks just like what we saw in Raccoon City. Or Harvardville a couple of months ago. <laughs> it makes no sense. George, what's what's your brief impressions of of, uh, of Infinite Darkness? I'm with you, Neptune. I, I really did enjoy the first episode. You know, my frustration and anger at the low points of this just come from what I want these CGI films to do for the series and what they can do. And as a fan of the, uh, Degeneration, yeah, it went downhill very quickly. And the things that did particularly frustrate me is, you know, I'm not going to criticise this for not being what it was never going to be it was never going to be survival horror but at the end of the day i will criticize bad writing and bad script and bad characterization and it just seems i do get angry when some of these the things in in this the failings are clearly so apparent i mean how can you expect us to have any sympathy for two protagonists you know jason when they slaughter you know young men almost boys in the submarine and then that ridiculous scene of exposition that's so lazy in episode three at the bedside of, of the stricken brother and what I'm, I'm meant to feel sympathy for his sister who I've just seen take out for no other reason than they just happened to be there at, at the time so things like that I found particularly frustrating
demonstrating poor characterization. We're not given any backstory or, or history into this virus. Jason was a, a poor man's Curtis Miller, wasn't he? And at the end, he just, it, it, it's comedic. I mean, we've joked about, the, you know, his mantra, but that again, to me, that just that speaks to lazy writing, and and the only thing in, in in it was unfortunate. I think was it at the beginning of episode three when Claire goes into that mansion, and and actually that scene, which funny enough was the main focus of the first trailer that got us all excited for this. That was the only time watching this that I actually quite felt like I was in a Resident Evil production, and then it was over very quickly. And last thing I just want to say is how poor that we've just regressed in terms of what this series does to portray female protagonists. You know, in the late nineties, wasn't exactly the most well era yet i thought resident evil was quite you know forward in the way that we presented with these female protagonists and and claire is just completely neutered and um yeah it it was quite embarrassing i agree (laughs) very strong point that paul raised for sure i think the biggest problem with all four cg productions is that they're very much part of the canon but i think for licensing reasons Capcom can only go so far as to integrate them into the greater lore of the main series. And like Revelations 2 does reference degeneration in a few spots, but it's very much at arm's length. And I think mm. that's that level of hesitation in integrating them deeper than they could be is hurting the product overall, right? Yeah. Um, for a little context, you know, we're never gonna see Angela or Jason or well. Yeah, Jason and Shenmei are gone, but we'd never see them. We probably won't see Wilson or what was the name of that lady at the end of Vendetta who survived? Maria, right? We're never, we're never going to see them in games as far as I'm concerned, because from what I know, like the production companies behind the CG films own those characters. I don't think they're actually owned by Capcom. So to put them into a game would require like some kind of like licensing fee to be paid out. And I don't, I think that's a bridge too far for Capcom when they can just make some new character. You know, that's why we ended up with Helena instead of Angela. I was about to to say that is fascinating. If that, if that is the case, that is, um, wow. You're right about the revelations. Cause I think in, is it revelations too? You can, you can hear parts of damnation on the radio. I think John, you'll be able to confirm as there's talk from the Eastern Slav Republic in Rev 2. Yeah. Yeah. You hear a radio transmission. Yeah. That is that is yeah. about as, as, as deep as it gets. But that yeah, that that point about Angela Miller. So people who are unaware, obviously, Angela Miller from Degeneration is uh, remarkably similar to Helena Harper in uh, Resident Evil Six, voiced by the the same voice actress as well. It should have been the same person, but I wonder if if Alex's theory there is is the reason why we won't see her Just again. A, I mean, they can make it happen, right? But sure. I mean, even like it, for for Revelations Two to mention Terrasave, they had to i guess credit degeneration in the credits of revelations 2 in order for those references to be allowed i think i'd have to go back to the credits of revelations 2 and check but that's definitely they can't just use certain elements of the cg films in the games for free right so that's why it's always going to be this weird kind of disconnect even though they're trying to say yeah it's actually part of the same universe you 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 have to you have to watch degeneration and infinite darkness if you want to know what happens between resident evil 4 and resident evil 5 which is kind of true but you know we we never see that kind of hit its full potential Mm. if you think about now like with a different media franchise with the marvel cinematic Mm. universe right like the, the disney plus tv series those obviously have very tight connections with the films right you know people will consider the films the main meat of of the franchise like the games are in resident evil but you know the the tv series are no slouch 
in the Marvel world. And I think Capcom really needs to lean into that a lot more and either stop being afraid or stop being cheap, right? <laughs> to to, to kind of help it get there. But, you know, I didn't, I'm not holding my breath for that, to be honest. Mm. The other thing, it's, it's, and I guess it's quite fitting after our last episode, is that I almost feel like these animated series slash movies could benefit more from them doing the same thing they've done with the more recent games and bringing in a Western writer to kind of write a narrative for them. Even obviously if it gets, you know, collaboratively produced and they you know there's certain elements they want to put in and, and reach but just having that sort of a little bit more strength in, in filmic writing than perhaps they have because i think that is the biggest downfall of all of these is that the narratives within them the character beats they aren't always consistent they aren't always even i almost want to say in a lot of ways the characters themselves might have gotten a little bit more drawn over the series but also the general consistency of narrative has perhaps gotten worse over the the four films to the point where I thought yeah, all of these characters are very poorly written, poorly planned for compared to maybe say earlier in the in the series. But yeah, that's a shame. I, it is. I would it is. say the director of Infinite Darkness is actually pretty well known in Japan and pretty well respected. So yeah, to see such I guess inconsistent delivery is is really really surprising. Mm. Well, obviously, we're talking about characterizations. Let's talk about the main two then, with uh, Claire and Leon. Uh, what was quite nice, of course, we've got a bit of consistency with uh, at least in, in the West, the, the voice actors with uh, Nick and Stephanie returning from their role in Remake Two. I thought, and this is kind of going what you were saying, George. If we start with Claire first, she was given you know an interesting role, but there was that sidelining of her, and a lot of the reviews before the series actually came out really chastised the way they used Claire. It was almost like a hindrance to Leon's campaign uh, in, in this, and indeed. You know, you watch it, she kind of finds out everything, just like, you know, a couple of minutes after Leon's found it out, you know, so it's all, she almost like repeats what you've just learned, um, as, you know, as she's finding out about the, the chips and whatnot, but you've just found even... out that in, with Leon's and she, she, she is sidelined, uh, which is really unfortunate, but I actually thought the kind of material she was given was very much in line with perhaps OG Resident Evil 2 Claire she's a lot more caring a lot more maternal and I, I kind of resonated a bit with her more so than perhaps how she was portrayed in Remake 2 that's a good point about the paternal thing I didn't actually pick up on that and you're absolutely right and and that's something that we missed didn't we from from her representation in Revelations mm. 2 but the thing that I th thought was even worse because you, you, you're right she does find things out often just you know almost as, as, as an aside but what she found out before Leon even worse was you know that ridiculous scene that you know with, with the, the baddie telling her you know this is my plan and this is what I'm <laughs> And she's just a vehicle for him to tell the again so much exposition in this which I mean often I actually what we're being told I would have liked to have seen you know played out in scenes particularly at the scene you know of, of the stricken brother um, but by that point you know I'd lost all complete sympathy for Jason. I feel like that's a budget thing too like just uh, you know getting more scenes more characters and you know all that sort of stuff that costs money to make so the easiest way is more writing you know and it is it unfortunately is a bit of lazy vehicle George. you're, you're mm. right i would excuse it it was quite heavy-handed but just that thing with claire that she was literally just a vehicle for for the boss just almost like a bad james bond film you know this is what as he's rubbing his hands with glee this is what i'm gonna do and and, and mm. yeah and it's a shame because you know there's a lot of love for claire in the re fandom uh she, she's certainly one of the fan favorites and as i said I, I thought the actual material stephanie had and the way she delivered it was good i said you know her interactions with the little boy at the beginning were good and it didn't feel too 
forced and it is it, it harkened back to the claire that we knew uh, mm. from two and co veronica absolutely it, yeah. I, yeah. I thought i liked her performance in this more than i liked it in remake too um mm. i'd be interested to see what from alex's perspective what it's like for the japanese version because i know it's the same voice actors for the remake two mm. in japanese yeah they rarely recast actors in japan but they do it all the mm. time outside of japan and i i mean yeah i honestly don't know why <laughs> I get a different answer every time I ask somebody, you know, why they change voice actors. Sometimes it's budget, schedule, direction, union or non-union. But yeah, in Japan, it's very consistent. So you, you do get the same characterizations in that language. I have to say, because Infinite Darkness is an anime production, I think the Japanese VA actually is quite fitting in a way where the English one isn't quite at the same level, but that's just me personally. I've always thought it depends on who it is. Like, there's some of the voice actors I've had in some of the previous ones who've done, who've been kind of anime dub actors in the US, and others that obviously aren't. And I, and there's a big difference. I can definitely, you can definitely tell in the in the US between the people who do a lot of animation work and the people who don't. Sure. Sure. Sean, you're, you're kind of indicating that you, you agreed with this Claire characterization being a bit better than Remake 2. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is not to detract anything away from Steph and this is not sort of a you know an Alison Court craving or anything like that which we hear a lot mm. of in the, in the fandom but um I did find that in the sort of remake two interpretation of Claire we lost a lot of that sort of compassion that we we associate with the character of Claire that we've seen across you know many sort of titles and I felt that the scene with her and the boy at the beginning was fantastic and it's the first time I felt Stephanie's interpretation of the character did sort of echo back to the sort of warmth and the care that we got from Alison's performance. I thought it was great. And yeah, my only issue with Claire as a character is how sideline she got. George, you, you elaborated something during your, your preview comments um, about how the women are mistreated in this movie. And I must say, you know, though obviously the Shen Mei's goals are somewhat murky and, you know, as you mentioned about her offing the submarine crew, the way she is dispatched is particularly vicious. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was um, going to... I was going to say the same thing, Sean. Yeah. It, it was an unnecessary, mm. like it doesn't do anything narratively. It's literally just to dispatch the character because they, it's almost like they didn't know what to do with her. Yeah, and it's, it's after she's already like, you know, lost everything in episode three as well. It just, it feels like a particularly cruel blow to the character, you know, and then when our, when our man Jason just picks up Leon, it you know, just sort of says a comment and just flings him. <laughs> I thought Claire was fine, just as what's already been said, really. I thought she was really well portrayed in this, but just not in it enough. I think someone said on some forum somewhere she's got 17 minutes of screen time across all four episodes. Is that it? Um, so, yeah, something like that, yeah. So it's a shame in that regard. It would have been nice for her to be front and centre in this and maybe Leon to have a supporting role for a change. I'm actually surprised it's that long. It doesn't feel like it. Mm. It's a shame because they, they obviously marketed it quite strongly. It's like it's another Leon and Claire adventure and it's not quite, it didn't quite go as it should. Um, okay, so we can look at Leon um, and I think we can all agree since his degeneration iteration, he, he's progressed on from his plank of wood that we see in degeneration and he's a lot more human in this portrayal and I think that's again down to pretty good uh, voice acting from Nick in this case. I think he, he's 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 really getting Leon, and I felt, from my point of view, I felt that he, he did the role justice in, in showing his progression from that kind of rookie cop role in Remake Two to being a lot more professional. And clearly, he was held in very high regard by a lot of people within the corridors of power. I was quite happy with the way Leon was portrayed. He was a bit, he's very professional, as you would Im imagine, and he was still he still had a bit of a quip about him, didn't he? I, I liked when they were he was 
probing Jason and Shen Mei about where they're going, and he's like, classified, classified. You know, <laughs> it's like I think that worked quite well. And then he was ch- chatting up Shen Mei as well. It, it wasn't cringe, was it? it? It felt a bit like Leon, and he's he's you know he's obviously a lot more confident he gets dispatched by the president oh yeah i'm i'm being flown in special orders in comes leon and he can you know and he cracks a few jokes about it i think the characterization of leon was a billion times better than degeneration which was was well, there wasn't one so <laughs> um I, I was happy with that <laughs> one of the things that i think they did well with leon in this is established his like how miserable his role appears to be like degeneration sort of hammed up like he's almost this james bond action figure that really relishes this kind of life but one of the sort of sh- sharper aspects of infinite darkness i found was the fact that he seems a little bit lonely a little bit dejected by the life that he's kind of been ushered into by uh, you know like the likes of Adam Benford and stuff who sadly doesn't appear in this and I think that would have been a great thing to do uh, and Nick does channel into that a little bit something I've become a bit warmer to since watching it the first time um, there's definitely some layers to Leon's performance that is not necessarily apparent on your first watch if there's one thing that definitely re- rewards a repeat viewing it's sort of what's going on with Leon underneath the layers you got to remember of course he's come straight from another incident that's happened in Pittsburgh he's literally been flown in and then you know you've got the press secretary you know doing acrobatics with a zombie and he just comes in and he says shoot them in the head for fuck's sake basically you know you kind of get there's a degree of frustration in his instructions it's almost like he's been he's been telling people for so long to do yeah. this and still people won't listen <laughs> uh, I, li- I kind of did like that Mm. I don't know what happened in Pittsburgh. Who knows? Another another incident. <laughs> well, there's a few, isn't there? I'm, I'm really going off on a, on a tangent. I think there's the one in Minnesota as well from the stage. I think referred to another bioterrorist incident there. So there's all sorts of little things they they could expand upon one day, but never will. But probably won't. Ever probably won't. Won't, get, won't get mentioned ever again. It won't. It won't. George, you're quite <laughs> scathing of well, not scathing of Claire, but you know, uh, upset about Claire. What about Leon? Uh, how did you how did you find your encounters with Mr. Kennedy? I agree with everything that's been said. In fact, I think the only thing that's kind of improved over these these CGIs, because I think they have got progressively worse since the, the highlight, because actually, you know, you made the comment about 4D Executor, and I think I would put that, if we are counting that, I would put that at the top. Uh, with, um, <laughs> wow. No, I would with that's Degeneration cool. after it. But no, you're right about Leon, in fact, because that was probably one of the only things that jarred with me in Degeneration was how Leon was portrayed, almost like a parody of how he was in Resident Evil 4. Yeah, that's a good point about kind of embittered with where he finds himself. I always remember reading that epilogue after Resident Evil 3 and feeling kind of really soy you know he's really lonely and dejected you know forced into this work now with the government and yeah there were kind of throwbacks to that I was thinking of when you guys were talking about how so yeah I, I would agree with all of that I mean I didn't I suppose the only things about Leon I didn't like it, it wasn't his fault you know I thought the voice acting throughout the production was fantastic i thought for the most part the animation was incredible i loved it it was fantastic uh I might be showing my age maybe younger observers of cgi and anime might think that you know i have read some criticisms but i thought some of the shots were beautiful going back to leon what the only thing i didn't like again was just how he was there again with just so much exposition when he's telling us oh this was the plan and yeah i found that a little bit frustrating and interesting scene at the end with claire and um how he kind of feels that going alone is going to be a better way to achieve his goal that that was interesting i'm not sure if that's playing to how we're going to find those two characters in maybe you know a sequel 
One aspect I have uh, like that I've seen some fans speculate is that, and it could be compensating for Revelations 2's interpretation of Claire, but the way she's sort of treated by Leon at the end of this is what leads into her sort of colder side that certainly the English version of Revelations 2 depicts, which I thought was an interesting theory. Yeah, that is, yeah. This was something, Batman, you, you mentioned quite heavily, actually. You, you thought the ending, which we'll talk about the, the main storyline and the law consequences a bit later on, but the fact that Leon wouldn't hand over the evidence that Claire clearly wanted, you found, Batman, that to be quite an interesting aspect and quite brave of Capcom to do so. And uh, what, what's your take on what Sean said there about perhaps leading on to Revelations 2, Claire, which has been criticised a bit by some fans? Yeah, I think it's an interesting point. I can quite easily see them going down that road. I think canonically as well, it's also their last appearance in the timeline together. And maybe it's a reason why they haven't been seen together since, because this rift that's developed between them has, has grown over the years. I don't know. There's a number of different ways they could go down with it. But um, when that scene came about, I was honestly expecting a retread of the degeneration epilogue. And I was quite pleased to see some conflict there. You know, it was clearly a hard decision for Leon to make because he obviously wants to protect Grey and he believes that you know if this conspiracy got out it would just cause utter chaos because no one would trust the government etc and it kind of ties into the themes in Resident Evil 6 you know when Leon has hesitations about Benford wanting to reveal the truth about the government's link to Raccoon City so I thought it was an interesting theme and I know we'll talk about it in more detail but I was I was really happy with how that scene played out I thought it was the best thing in the uh, in all four episodes to be honest. Alex, did you have any any comments about the interactions between Leon and Claire? Yeah, um, it was nice to see them together again. Yeah, it's been 15 years since we saw them together, right? In Degeneration. So, I mean, we didn't get much time with them together, unfortunately. It was really just, what, two or three scenes? It was nice, but I didn't really get much out of it, to be honest. I, I feel like Resident Evil 6's files did a better job of describing Leon and Claire's relationship than this movie did. Insofar as, yeah, Leon's characterization... Yeah, this might be the thing that saves the whole production for me, because I think if you kind of see this as more as a lead into how we see Leon in Damnation and in RE6 and then eventually in Vendetta, then, then you do as a follow up to Resident Evil 4 and Degeneration. I think it actually gives Leon and his motives, you know, a, a little bit more depth than he had before, because, you know, if you just look at you know, degeneration and damnation. Like, like by the time damnation rolls around, Leon obviously has reservations about trusting the government that he works for. And by the end of the damnation, you know, he had that scene with Hunnigan, right, where he, it almost looked like he was about to quit his job. But you don't really see how they got to that point following degeneration. So I think Infinite Darkness kind of is a nice first step in contextualizing that gap between the two CG films. And I think there's a lot of potential for a follow-up series that kind of takes a deeper look at that. That's true. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I forgot about the kind of damnation government elements there. No, that's a, a good point. Rob, any final comments on on Leon, how you felt he was handled? No, I mean, you guys have all pretty much summed it up. It's kind of what Alex was talking about earlier in regards to, to Leon in Japan and and why he's in these series and, and why they've made him such a focal point. But it's also good to have a consistent anchor across all these animated features, for lack of a better term, because of that. And I, and, and I think it has been interesting, especially when you get to see the, how the character is portrayed and, and, and when you give these opportunities to create more depth and, and put them in interesting situations where it's not always as clear cut you know to make a decision uh, no pun intended and um yeah it'd be interesting to see where they followed up with and and, Le and where leon continues to grow time frame wise it's going to be interesting too because of where the character eventually leads the path that leads the character down 
as well. Okay, uh, what I think we can talk about now are the baddies. So we're looking at Jason and Shen Mei, but I think what would be quite a good way, we could have a segue into the storyline, because I think if we kind of work out what the hell's going on, because a lot of these films, or we, we have all sorts of flashbacks. So let's kind of break down the storyline, and that will feed into, um, as George has already mentioned, the motives and whether he felt that there were good motives and whether we should have felt any ping of sympathy towards what they went through. So we're looking at the Pananistan civil war in, in the year 2000, at some point, it was used as a BOW testing ground for a version of the T-virus. Hopefully, the soon-to-be-released manga will explain exactly what T-virus it is. It's getting a Western release as well, as well. Yeah, I should have mentioned that in the news, actually. Yes, in the um, yeah, it's on it's on Amazon at the moment, and it says it's coming out in English. So we'll we'll wait with bated breath. But yeah, so soldiers had been implanted with inhibitors to. Uh, monitor their vitals but also record combat data which is a lovely little throwback to the original Resident Evil 1 really with combat data being important and then the mad dogs were infected and they met with uh, John C and um, then uncovered a bit bit of a conspiracy they're infected they needed these inhibitor injections uh, to keep the virus at bay so we've got a t-virus preventative vaccine if you like um, or delaying tactic with the death of uh, well, the, the the near death, if you like, the zombification of Shenmei's brother. She she vowed revenge. Jason was getting pissed off that he was now being used by Defense Secretary Wilson as a puppet, and together they concocted uh, a plan to bring down slash expose the U.S. government in a rather elaborate scheme. <laughs> so we'll start with kind of Jason then. So he was the hero of Pananistan. He's kind of built up as being, you know, this great soldier. But we learn throughout the, you know, throughout the course of the film that uh, he was, he was a good soldier, but he was, as I said, this kind of puppet, if you like, of Wilson. And he was providing him with these inhibitors to prevent him from uh, turning into, well, what would become a tyrant-like creature. And of course, he had his famous fear leads to terror lines that he's doing the rounds with the memes and quite rightly so. Did he stick out enough to perhaps other baddies that we've had, uh, or sympathetic baddies such as like Curtis Miller, who's very much in the same sort of mould? He's seeking revenge, exposure, uh, you know, of that kind of corruption. The storyline's very similar. Again, I thought his voice acting was very good. It was very heartfelt. You got the, the indication from the way it was being portrayed that he generally felt what he was feeling. But I'm not sure whether the actual overall character was strong enough to garner that that feeling of understanding because he was going about it in such ridiculous ways. Especially when, and we'll touch on this as well, especially mm. when they ha- arguably had the evidence, as, as Shen Mei says, already under their, under their noses. I'm not sure how much of that other thing that they did was needed, but we'll, we'll come on to that in a minute. So, any, anyone mm. want to jump in about Jason? If I, I think from perspective, if I want to compare it, like, it's a weird mix, because I'm now I'm trying to formulate exactly how to put this movie. On a basis of someone having a reactionary response to stuff that they've been through and other people have been through, it kind of makes sense. I can understand their frustration, and in some respects, I kind of perhaps sympathize with the character more than I did, say, Glenn Arias in his situation because even though his one was much more personable there was more impact to this because of you saw more of what happened but that doesn't excuse 
the fact that, as you've just exactly pointed out, I think they have better ways to achieve what they wanted. But then my question about that is the two of them, they had two very differing ideas on how that they were going to portray this to the public, and especially at the, by the end. And it changes the outcome quite significantly, I think, in that respect. And then I do start asking, what's the point, you know, when they hit this chip that would have had proven everything they needed along with just themselves and the fact they have to take this inhibitor, you know, that would have probably said enough in of itself. Stars? In all honesty, I think Jason's one of the reasons why I feel that sort of apathy to the project as a whole, because not to say that like Resident Evil has had like particularly deep villains over the years. I mean, you know, Rob, you mentioned Glenn Arius, and to be honest, mm. like his motivations and whatnot are, are borderline comical. You know, Simmons, in many ways, as much as we've sort of touted in the past, that like, you know, Simmons should really have been like the new Albert Wesker of, of villains for the series moving forward. And they really should have stuck with him. And it was um, a shame they killed him off. When you actually look back through like Resident Evil 6 and motivations for the character, they're very similar to Arius's. And it just is an obsession with an unattainable lady. You know, Arius with Rebecca, um, Simmons with Ada. Jason's is a lot more deeper and richer in terms of like his goal and what it means to him personally but it's told so uh, it's gonna seem really really harsh but it's told so flatly that i just tend to find i care so little about it no i get what you're saying because obviously what he's trying to enact revenge on the horrors and the terror that he's seen in the civil war we don't see it enough of it i don't think yeah absolutely but I, i don't i don't know whether it's just a fault of the writing or the fact that it was it felt very hurried even though they had four episodes to sort of go into it but i just felt jason as a character despite the sort of backstory that they established for him which was admittedly quite rich and like i say his his goals are noble but it's all surface in terms of how it's presented within this project i mean a little bit for that for me was the fact that he we got such little screen time with him so it was very difficult to find empathy with the situation and particularly when one of the first acts that we see is when he slaughters those almost young you know young men on the submarine and then at the end you know i referred to him as a poor man's curtis miller i mean his form as a bow is so disappointing in terms of the writing and that could have been one of the moments when in that form we could have empathized with that tragedy and all he does is just spout this nonsense about fear (laughs) Was he actually even needed in this storyline other than to become a tyrant? Because arguably Shen Mei's reasoning for revenge and exposure is quite a lot stronger on on, on the face of it. Now that you mention it, yeah, I, I think that's a great point. I, I think if you took Jason out of the plot line and made Shen made a tyrant <laughs> instead, I think that really would have been we wouldn't have lost anything, right? No. And I was I wasn't really impressed with Jason in general. I just think he he never really felt threatening. He never really came off as someone with a nice plan, with a grand plan, right? Like I feel like in the three CG films, every villain had some kind of a workable plan. You know, maybe he got foiled at the end because it's Leon they're up against, right? <laughs> but in this one, Jason's plan is pretty ineffectual, I guess. I was about to say this. is actually funny you say that, Alex, because what I was going to say is that I think his plan is ineffectual. But ironically, I think he's the one that comes the closest to actually enacting his plan properly out of all the CG <laughs> movies. Like when you think about it, which is really weird. I think that can be debated, 
Hmm. I mean, well, Curtis Miller, yeah, I, I feel like maybe he was doomed to failure by far, yeah. like the easiest. He was stuck in an underground lab, and I don't know how he was going to get but, out. But a lot of it is because I think in the end, it's not really his plan that he goes for. It's literally, this is the only path I've got left because Leon has closed up all my options, you know? He got shot right. by him, and then he had to destroy the mansion, the Chinese mansion, and then literally his only resolve now is that he's pushed him to this limit where he has to confront the person who's been manipulating him, literally turn himself into a tyrant and release himself to the public right. because it's the only recourse he's got. So I don't know if it's really his plan. It's just kind of where he's kind of been pushed to. Mm-hmm. And on that front, like I, that makes sense, but it's still it depends, so terribly handed. I guess it just depends on how we measure Arius's success or lack thereof, <laughs> right? Because he transformed New York into a zombie that outbreak. Right? That is true. And yeah, I, I think it's funny per capita, his the amount of damage he, he left in his wake was pretty high. You know, for a for a throwaway CG film <laughs> enemy, yeah, Jason. Eh, it almost seems like they want Wilson to be the true bad guy, and you know, maybe we'll 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 get to see him again in a future movie or a CG series if they end up making one. Uh, but yeah, I, I I didn't get much out of the enemies, and I was I was I was a little disappointed at Shenmei as well for being a bit. Um, I don't know, inconsistent from episode to episode. I think with Shenmei, I, I really, I really liked her, uh, you know, a kind of kick-ass nature of it, and I think she distinguished herself enough from other female characters that we've had in the series enough to make her interesting. And you sympathised a lot more, you know. It, I think this is the first time we've ever kind of seen, you know, basically a zombie hooked up to a life support machine, um, which was quite a startling kind of image. Um, and you know, family members gathered round an undead corpse. Uh, you know, it's, you, you got that. You kind of got that, and especially because you got the flashbacks to a brother as well when he was still alive. I think that worked. And I, you know, my earlier point that maybe it could have just been a simple revenge case, but then would it have been too similar to Vendetta in that sense, perhaps? But I did like her, and I, I do agree with what Sean said earlier. And George, you know, her dispatching was was very brutal for Resident Evil. Can I quickly ask just that scene that you mentioned, Neptune? If anyone else, would you have preferred with the brother? Because for quite a while he was, you know, kind of obscured by the the curtain. You know, I was kind of curious as to what you know was was behind what we would see, and and I thought actually would have been an opportunity for this production to have kind of been a little bit more kind of sophisticated and clever. But then when we were just shown what we were seeing, it. it it almost kind of took out for me again. I just I looked at the grandfather. I think she refers to him as grandfather, doesn't she? And and but that he would just put him in this position for so long. I mean, it was horrendous torture, and it kind of just jarred with me whether a loved one would really, you know, just because there was clearly no improvement. I was wondering whether actually we were going to see that there had been some improvement in his condition since the you know from the major infection. Sure. But it clearly wasn't, and it was almost too horrific to have seen i would have preferred it if we'd kind of if they'd have just left us kind of to have wondered yes it's bordering on cruel keeping them alive and john you'll probably uh, be able to elaborate if my law knowledge and timeline knowledge is up to date shouldn't there have been by this time the will farmer t vaccine available yeah, it would be available, but you know that's not going to save you when you're already a zombie. No, but I was, th- I was thinking more so with Jason, the inhibitor chips or the inhibitor injections, which seem to be a major key point. They're infected with a T virus, and they have been for such a long period of time. By the time the Will Farmer T vaccine is out, the fact that these tricell products can keep the T virus at bay, one would assume, I'm no scientist, that if they were then given the actual T vaccine, they would have actually been cured. 
adapts, I suppose. But again, because we know so little about this variant virus, then, you know, there's, there's easy workarounds. If it's a certain variant, then we can always say, well, the vaccine won't work against that variant. I, th- mm. I thought the inhibitors was a good plot point. I like the way he had that, you know, was hanging over them uh, mm. in, in terms of um, holding them to a ransom over their life. It's strange because obviously Jason was being blackmailed, as was his whole squad. But then Sheng Mei never had, was never infected. So Wilson never really had that same hold over her, albeit she obviously wanted a brother to survive. My problem with Jason really is obviously he was built up as a sympathetic villain. And as George quite rightly says, it's completely undermined in that scene where him and Sheng Mei murder the crew of the submarine because you lose all sympathy for him then. And it sort of undermines what he's trying to do. And his ultimate motivation of demonstrating fear to spread terror, it's, it's just a little bit too much like what Neil Fisher was trying to do in Revelations 2. And sort of by extension, Morgan Lansdale, you know, by killing innocent people and causing a biohazard specifically to show why biohazards are so dangerous, you know. It's that sort of motivation that keeps getting recycled with a different skin on it. And I'm getting a bit sick of it now. And that was another reason why I couldn't connect with Jason to a certain extent. And I would say Sheng Mei was the pointless one, really, because her brother, Jung Sing, could easily have died in Panamistan and... You know, her role would be obsolete, really. She seems to only be in there because they need to recover the chip, you know, from his body. But mm. I thought Sheng Mei was a character that could probably delete and we wouldn't really lose a lot from the story. It's interesting. It's interesting. Going back to the sympathy elements of our two bad guys, you're right. The submarine scene, you know, not only do they release T-virus rats, specifically B.O.W.s, but they, you know, they, they mass murder, slit throats, and presumably under the orders of Wilson. And of course, we know from the very vague explanation from Leon that it must have been Jason that caused the zombie outbreak in the White House. Quite how, we don't know. He's very happy to kill quite a lot of innocent people without seemingly any protestations. You would have thought that with Wilson not actually being on the scene in the submarine, he perhaps could have, you know, the whole point was it to, I suppose, to give credence to the idea that the Chinese were attacking the, you know, attacking it. But did he actually need to kill them all? I don't know. Could he have kind of like faked it? It was a stealth submarine. So the US government may not have been able to track it if they just, you know, got rid of all the, the tracking radars within it or something. I don't know. It, it just seems that they're quite happy to go, oh, I hate being under control of Wilson. And then he goes, kill everyone okay okay it, it, it just seemed a bit easy is an easy way out i said i didn't quite get that conflict that sense of conflict that shen mei and jason had in doing these orders in zombifying so many people in the white house and killing so many people in a submarine the submarine thing to me was confusing because early on when they did it i thought the reason why they were doing it was not because it was orders although i assume it was in the end but it was more to cover their own tracks and make it seem like they were dead so they could get away with doing what they wanted to do to a their own plan which would have made sense but i think you're right i think that was part of the plan to frame china because it seemed like that's just immediate but it could also be spin like immediately it happened so immediately it just gives will some more reason to yeah, blame yeah, yeah. my knees so i don't i still don't know but either way yeah it kind of goes against the point of what they yeah it, it's contradictory to the point of them being upset, but then I guess it also kind of lines up where Jason ends up at the end of the movie. I don't know. It's, it's a mess. The US versus China um, aspect of it is interesting as well because it kind of infers things that we're going to see later down the line in Resident Evil 6 and stuff that arguably has its seeds planted in, of all things, Dead Aim. Yes. Once again, Dead Aim saving the franchise. <laughs> I got very excited. I was muted then. I got so excited when Sean mentioned their names. Can I just add that in terms of an antagonist that has this 
mantra that they're so obsessed by and repeat where that's done very well that actually is dead aim i think with morpheus de duval and you know his mantra about beauty the u.s china thing also ties into resident evil 6 with the family i think it's missing in the english localization but the japanese files in particular about the family one of their goals is to maintain u.s superiority over the likes of china and the east so i found that quite interesting it wouldn't surprise me if wilson had ties to simmons and the family obviously in my head canon because capcom wouldn't do that but you know I think it's one of those things we, we spoke about before we knew. Uh, oh, we, this could be linked to Blue Umbrella, could be linked to Simmons now. There's all sorts of things that it could do, but I think, Alex, your comment about, about licensing has probably quelled any future Wilson appearance or something like that. Um, <laughs> but never mind. I mean, yeah, I would imagine Wilson's out of the picture by the time RE6 starts, so maybe we'll see that in another series at some point. Mm. Yeah, it would be nice to get a non-Leon character to appear in more than one CG film with the same plot, like with a continuation of what's going on. I mean, Claire obviously barely counts in this context. But yeah, I think I think they really need to follow up with something. And I mean, I, I in my own head, I've come up with a bunch of different potential scenarios for what it, like a successor could do. So hopefully they go with something that's believable. Mm. I'm placing a lot of faith in the manga in being able to expand upon a few, a few other scenes. I think what I want to talk about, very briefly talk about the BOWs in the sense of what we see right at the end, the kind of RE5-esque pods of these biological soldiers. I think when we first saw it, John, you mentioned in, in our Discord, um, and I wanted to bring it up here, that take away the appearance of, say, the Grahams as the president. Infinite Darkness could have easily and perhaps should have fitted in between Resident Evil 7 and 8 for the the kind of B.O.W. soldier angle that we later see in Village. Yeah, I must admit, when I watched it for the first time, you know, its placement in the timeline was fine. But then after playing Village, you would have thought, well, if this followed the traditional format like the previous CG films have been set between numbered titles, if you had say blue umbrella written on that case rather than tricell and obviously the genetically enhanced soldiers were made by them and then passed on to the bsaa that would have been a nice little informal tie into village and i think because we're going you know so far back into the timeline to 2000 i mean this is you know only a couple of years after code veronica it's before you know the likes of operation javier and even dead aim you know to have these super soldiers running round with these chips in them recording combat data. I know we don't see them in action, but obviously quite successful. And it just seems not far-fetched, but a bit of a jump in logic to have these kinds of, you know, genetically enhanced soldiers running around that far back in the timeline when they're clearly still struggling to perfect that same thing in 2021 with the, the BSAA soldiers. I just thought it perhaps would have worked better if it was a tie into village rather than, you know, set back in 2006 with Tricell. I'm going to ask the question, because I've seen this online, and John, you're going to have to answer this. Does the stuff that happens in 2000 seem slightly too early on its timeline for the things to be happening? Because that's what I keep seeing around, and I'm completely at a loss because I'm not the timeline master that you are. What do you mean exactly? I like, is, well, like a Tricell or another company involvement in 2000 that would have been able to produce the sort of results that are being deployed in Pananistan. Is that too early? for another company to be involved there's workarounds isn't there i mean i know the files in five sort of suggest that tricell made a huge step forward in bow production because the information wesker passed on to Exceller following umbrella's demise but there's workarounds because i think wesker gave that information to Exceller specifically so she could work her way up 
in the company into a position of power so Wesker could later exploit her. And that obviously turned out to be the case because she became director of Tricell Africa so Wesker could use her to get to the progenitor virus. Whereas after the Raccoon City incident when Umbrella were hit with the business suspension order, you know, ex-employees started leaking resources and data onto the black market, you know, shortly after Raccoon City. So it's not out of the realms of possibility that someone like Tricell could get hold of a T-virus variant in like 1999. But my issue, like I've already said, is sort of having these genetically enhanced soldiers running round as early early as 2000 when you know it just seems a bit early for that sort of success if you like i think we've also got to remember as well though i've always seen gm soldiers as very much as an offshoot of the bow production line i've always been of the opinion that the perfect bow is actually more like the plagas or juavo in terms of something that can be controlled but still retains a lot of intelligence you know and being able to throw weapons and, and you know that kind of thing something like a super soldier like we see and arguably the ones that are produced by blue umbrella and the bsaa they're not as good uh, well, they are good, but they're not quite perhaps what was originally intended, if you know what I mean. So I don't have too much of a problem with super soldiers because I, they're not, in my opinion, what, as a potential buyer of a BOW, I'm not sure that's what you would always want, if you know what I mean. The Plagas in RE5 is probably the closest we've got to almost a perfect BOW, in my opinion, as a product. But there we go. Um, in an real ideal world, chaps, I would have the information from these super soldiers has been as a direct result of the UT troopers from Resident Evil Survivor. I would love to see an organic link between that. Wouldn't that be nice? What a tie-in that would be to see Survivor brought back into the fore with arguably their most controversial. Monsters. You know as well as I, it's been erased. <laughs> I know it has, but you know, you, you look at them. You've got, you know, you've got the UT troopers. You've now got, you know, BOWs soldiers. It's all connected. It's all connected. I swear. And next, Ark Thompson's going to end up working for the US government. Is that what you're trying to say? Next? I'm just preparing the masses for it when they go. Oh my God, Ark <laughs> Thompson. They go, yeah. It, it's been hinted at for years. <laughs> no. I think you've got more chance of seeing Billy and Jill Valentine getting together. <laughs> That's a good segue, George, because Billy was very, very nearly in this. It was one yes. of the early concepts oh, that they looked yeah. at. Wow. Yeah, there was an interview with the producers, wasn't there, on the was it Biohazard Portal. They very much touted the idea of bringing back ex-convict Billy Cohen. Wow. But uh, decided oh, against not it. Not so unlikely, then. No, so he's not He's not forgotten. He is not forgotten. Unlike your Valentine, who I think has been forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> So they're those kind of super soldiers, which is a bit problematic, I think. I think John's right. I think there's there's some elements there. But are we in agreement that perhaps this isn't the T-virus, but a variant of the T-virus? It's got to be, I think. That early on in the timeline, it's got to be some slow-acting version of it. I don't know. I mean, we're given so little, we don't even know how this inhibitor works, really. But given the timeline, I mean, it's got to be around 1999 where this virus was developed, so can't see it being anything else that early on. Looks like to be quite a fast-acting T-virus, though. We, you know, we see the press secretary being attacked. Presumably, he's injected by someone. He does transform fairly quickly, uh, which was not always a staple of the early T-virus that we see in the games. And then once he has turned, he, you know, he's blooming you know, Linford Christie jumping up and down, leaping around in very much a kind of T-Phobos way. Uh, from Revelations 2 and if people are aware that the T-Phobos virus is a kind of is, is a variant of the T-virus that keeps people in almost a state similar to what I would call the, the Keeper's Diary state 
that kind of like he's kind of halfway in, halfway out. A bit like think of Brad in Remake Three, where he's kind of going, "I'm sorry," that kind of thing. That's the kind of T Phobos element and that keeps the zombies in that kind of status. Hence, they are able to run and jump uh, a bit more so than perhaps what your your Raccoon City zombies can do. So it was very much a point that I noted. They're going, "Oh, okay, these zombies can run, jump, and seemingly you know climb as well." We see them in Banana Slam, don't we? You know, having uh, a Resident Evil 4-esque siege. You know, no game is complete without them. So, um, you know, we even get one in the CGI. So they seem to be a lot more 28 Days Later-esque zombies. And that hasn't really been explained as to how that's the case. So a bit more explanation needed. Alex, I want to bring you in then about the the kind of T-virus there. Do you think anyone would even question that as to why whether it is a different variant of T I mean they they make the point that is this a T virus oh we'll have to check the lab results yeah um I think we've all learned about viruses and variants over the last six months in this real world (laughs) pandemic so it wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if they came up with some kind of plot line for explaining how this virus behaves I mean I feel like they're just kind of going down the list of potential pathogens and how they spread and how they're controlled. And after seeing what happened in Vendetta, obviously, with outright, you know, zombification reversed completely, right, with apparently no long-lasting damage or the thing in Damnation where they take the parasite out of your spine and you live after that, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me that this is kind of the turn that they took. Yeah, perhaps it's not as extreme then as I thought, but I personally don't like running zombies. I find them less scary than the slow lumbering zombie. That's why I think Remake 2 was quite popular in that sense, because you, you, know, you showered them with bullets and they, and they just kept on coming and coming and coming. You know, I personally prefer that, but there is clearly a popularity with running zombies causing more problems. I would note, though, this game confirms, if it, if it ever needed confirming, that the T-Virus, or at least this version of the T-Virus, is not spread by touch alone. Plenty of examples in Infinite Darkness where uh, a character touches the skin of a B.O.W., whether it be a zombie or uh, asparagus Jason tyrant and does not turn as a result. Wilson probably be being the... Um... Oh no, Wilson may have been infected, but Wilson was infected I suppose, but Shen Mei didn't, the other chappy press secretary didn't because there's always been some debate about whether touch alone would be enough to transmit the T-virus and I think this probably confirms that it, it doesn't. You probably need a bit of uh, bit more than just skin to skin. That's just an observation I made uh, when I was watching it. I made an interesting point before about the T4 boss virus because obviously the idea behind that was to sort of find an alternate delivery system so the human body could sort of learn to adapt to it and gain benefits rather than just become a zombie. And if you play Resident Evil Resistance, if you're into that sort of thing, it mentions there's a prototype T4 boss virus in experimentation during the events of that game. So that would put it in 1998. And obviously you've got things like Alexia with Code Veronica going into cold sleep so her body could sort of slowly adapt to the virus. So that's potentially maybe what they they were trying to do with this inhibitor, you know, slow the Mm. spread of the virus and it gains you some beneficial abilities. And maybe that's why Jason turns into a tyrant creature at the end because he's been taking these inhibitors for six years. You know, his body's learned to adapt to a certain extent, which is maybe why he turns into a tyrant creature rather than a zombie. I was about to say, that's one of the big questions as to why Jason turns. And so you're inevitably drawn back to Wesker's report two is either one in hundred, what was it, hundred million, hundred thousand, ten thousand, whatever it was, that's got the special genes. I agree entirely. I think it's purely because he's had 
almost like minuscule amounts of T-virus over the past six years with these inhibitor injections. He's adapted. And when he stops taking them, he's actually morphs into that tyrant. I think all of the mad dogs probably would have done as well, but uh, had they not committed suicide. I think the last one, did he actually shoot off his head? Was he totally decapitated? Can't remember. Think so, that, yeah. Yeah, the one that Claire found, yeah, he had, yeah. So that would have killed him. So I think all the mad dogs would have actually mutated. And that feeds in as well to other characters we've had over the years in in the series. Someone like Jack Norman, the ultimate abyss boss in Revelations. He becomes the ultimate abyss purely because he's had tiny amounts of T abyss of virus in his system for three years, John. I think I can't remember. Uh, and his, you know, sheer will and determination to live underwater with the Queen Dido. That's why he mutated rather than being someone with the special genetics required to become a tyrant. So I think that's why Jason did mutate the way he did, not because he was special or anything like that, just because of this prolonged exposure to the virus. Yeah, I don't really understand why he just didn't go at the president's press conference and let himself turn there rather than go into the underground lab. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true but then i don't understand why they went through a lot of the issues anyway when they clearly knew about the chip for some time i'm not quite sure why shen may just couldn't requested two weeks annual leave gone to see mum and dad picked up the chip and gone back home again not quite sure why she needed to go through such an elaborate scheme of killing people and potentially having the rest of the uh, u.s agents on her for taking down a stealth submarine when she could have just as you said, she wasn't under Wilson's control. Why she couldn't have just gone and get the chip. They've had it for a while. And likewise, what, to the point of the end, aside from the fact that it kills herself, but also just leak that to the press. Yeah, yeah, it does seem somewhat convoluted. But a bit different if they discovered the chip during the mission. That would understand. But, you know, they had the smoking gun for a while. I wasn't quite sure what they were getting at. You know, what's, what are you waiting for? Just release it. But uh, I think that was, Jason was a bit hesitant in doing so no i lie he was like this will be what we need that is a confusing plot point i'm not sure if anyone has any views on that i was bothered by claire as well because claire obviously finds the evidence under that picture that wilson's responsible for everything i mean fair enough it's only circumstantial evidence at that stage but why on earth does she go and confront wilson about it you know why doesn't she try and get a message to leon or why doesn't she tell anyone but wilson because all it does is lead to her being captured (laughs) that's true yeah there's a few plot points Hmm. Okay, so I think we've covered quite a lot of the key points. <laughs> the big question that has, that has arisen a lot in, in the community has been, season one, is season two happening? I'm told that Netflix do this quite a lot and will label something season one, even if there is no planned season two, or at the point of calling it season one, a commissioned season two. So I'm informed we shouldn't necessarily be assured of a season two. But if there is, would everyone think about whether they should follow on with this storyline or perhaps go on a completely different tangent? Because this storyline is to an extent wrapped up. Historically with Netflix, they number something a season, give it a season designation if they are open to the possibility of it being continued in some capacity. Otherwise, they would have called it a limited series, right? a limited event series or something like that. And this kind of links back full circle to my original comment that if they don't sequel it, I genuinely wonder why they picked 2006 to set the series in. It's very specific a year to play in can potentially lead to various problems with you know sort of retroactive storytelling and unless they sort of capitalize on the storyline they've established the ending that they choose to finish on with this sort of conflict between leon and claire then if they, if they don't do anything with that then i wonder why it exists in the first place to be honest 
Alex? I think it'll get renewed, personally. I think Netflix sees the value of the Resident Evil franchise. We're about to get another Netflix real uh, live-action series, so it's not even really the end of Resident Evil and Netflix. If not, they might just go back to the movie format, which I think will work. But yeah, I think Capcom's very much committed to keeping um, all of its franchises like in the multimedia sphere. I think there's, there's a Monster Hunter one coming out next month as well, so I, I anticipate it will continue. I just hope it comes out on Blu-ray. I hate it being stuck on Netflix, but I'm not holding my breath on that. Rob, what do you think? Do you, do you think we're going to get a new series? And do you think it will carry on with this storyline? Or do you think they'll go down having completely different storylines in Season 2? The common scenes would be to continue the story. Whether or not they do it, well, that's a question. I would hope that they do continue it. I guess Capcom also would look at how, like, there's the Castlevania anime series like that's been on Netflix and a few others like that, and they've probably gone, you know, that it's doing o- seemingly doing okay. Maybe this is a good avenue to continue down instead of the movies. Mm. So maybe, you know, it would be a good, another good I, reason to continue and being I, able to turn them around, you know, every year or two as well. Yeah, I think it can go either way with regards to um, whether they continue this specific storyline. I think that the tri-cell thing is just enough where... I don't know. Let's spitball ideas. You know, the next series takes place in 2007, which has never been seen in the Resident Evil universe before, or or even 2008. And maybe Leon does an investigation into Tricell, and that leads into the events of RE5. You know, it, I think there's a lot of possibility for connecting Infinite Darkness with RE5 very smoothly. So that that's what I hope they do. But if, if they decide not to, and they do something else random, who knows what they'll do at this point. You know, they might go back to the future, they might make a Damnation prequel, or... <laughs> I don't know. I think you're right. This is the problem, though. We, we as fans, you know, we spitball ideas, and they, they all sound promising. I've just thought of Umbrella Corpse, which is never a good thing. But Umbrella Corpse mentions, like, the downfall of Tricell. But you never see the downfall of Tricell. It's done off screen, which Capcom loved to do. They could, in theory, have the Tricell down, you know, take Tricell down, and then tie that in nicely with that. It could be like a, a Leon mission. You know, you killed everyone in Pananistan, that kind of thing. And It would line up to all the connections with Tricell that have happened over these animated... Yes, it would. Movies. Yeah, that's you a good know, point. Like, it would be a sensible way to eventually go to, even if it's not the next one, if they did a, an animated thing that took place after Resident Evil 5 that really looked at the demise of Tricell, isn't it? Mm. But, yeah, well... It's a shame then that something like Damnation didn't follow suit, but never mind, never mind. George, what's your feelings about a Series 2? Would you be excited as you were for Series 1? Well, yes, because I love to see Resident Evil, you know, in manga and, and, and in anime, irrespective of how poorly I've seen, you know, it produced in those genres in the past. You know, I'm always being positive about the series that I'm passionate about. And so absolutely, and I'd be excited about it, irrespective of how I've, particularly the writing has been so poor on, on this production. But... I can't see the benefit in continuing this story from the point of view that, you know, if we took Infinite Darkness out of the timeline, it would do nothing to affect, you know, the overall timeline. It, it, you know, what has it done? It's had very little purpose. I, I mean, I loved the rats, by the way, the DIGs on crack. No, I, I loved them. I, I'd love to see them again. I'd be interested in, in how, you know, what specific type of strain of the virus caused that. But until someone very cleverly mentioned, yes, I would like, that would be fantastic to see a link with Tricell and the start of RE5, which has one of the best narratives in the series. That would be interesting. I'd like to see that, definitely. 
John, we're going to give you the final thoughts on where Infinite Darkness can go, as well as as what George has kind of touched upon with the kind of law consequences, um, and you know where there's potential hiccups and slip-ups uh, with it. Looking back, because I know we spoke in a previous podcast about you know this is dangerous with retrospective storytelling. Were your fears confirmed, or do you think there's enough here just for Capcom to say get away with it? But you know what I mean, be able to continue to tell a relatively cohesive timeline narrative. Yeah, I don't think Infinite Darkness causes too many problems. I mean, we were all concerned in the build-up, weren't we, about the outbreak in the White House being a major thing, but it was obviously quite quickly contained, so it's quite believable to understand that that would never be made public and not many people would know about it, so that's not a problem. Going forward, I honestly don't think they'll do anything with it. I think if there is a Season 2, I don't think it'll be heavily connected. It'll obviously feature Leon, and it'll probably have some disillusionment with the government, but I think that'll be about it. I think Alex's idea is a good one. I would like to see Leon go up against Tricell. And I've personally always wanted to see a Leon versus Wesker scenario. But I don't think they'll ever do that because that'll cause continuity problems in itself because everyone thinks Wesker's dead at this point, you know, from Lost in Nightmares up until the events of Resident Evil 5 itself. So I think if Leon was to find out Wesker was still alive in that three-year period, that would cause some uh, continuity headaches. But Infinite Darkness itself potentially a missed opportunity to sort of connect with other elements in the series. Like you talk about Tricell, I mean, Wilson's obviously been working with Tricell for the last six or seven years. And we know Morgan Lansdale from Resolutions was very influential within the government. So there's potential for Wilson possibly being the one that introduced Lansdale to Tricell in the first place which would link very nicely with Revelations 1 and how Tricell became involved with the T-Abyss research. But personally, if they were to do another CG film or series, I would either like it to be a proper ensemble piece where we bring all the characters together, a bit like Resident Evil 6, or I would like them to go full-on prequel for one of the numbered games. You know, why not have Chris and the Hound Wolf squad and some sort of incident with Miranda which explains why Chris is so pissed off with her in Village? You know, why can't we have a proper sequel that'll really make us resonate with the events of what happens with the next numbered title rather than just being a standalone thing? Mm, interesting. A couple of good ideas there. Yeah. We shall see. Hope we'll, um, we'll touch base on this throughout the upcoming podcasts because there will inevitably be uh, infinite darkness manga news so we'll keep you all posted about that when that's coming out and you know there could well be some uh, changes to the overall narrative sometimes you get you know additional scenes bit of information so for example in the biohazard vendetta novel which accompanies the movie you, you learn that all the people in the towers that are destroyed by the railgun from the helicopter they were evacuated well before it you know blew up so there we go so there was no mass casualties from that misfiring of the railgun so there we go that's the sort of benefits that uh, a tie-in written media can bring so we'll keep everyone posted with regards to what uh, the new manga brings if anything as it's released okay so wrap it up then let's give our customary score review score out of 10 these are always interesting to see how uh, see what people think so uh, let's start with our guest alex how would you judge it out of 10 um uh, maybe like a 6.5 Okay. 6.5. Stars turn? A6. 6 out of 10 from Stars. Rombie? Mm, yeah, maybe like a 6. <laughs> I can see you go around Batman. Yeah, I think 6 is a very fair <laughs> score. <laughs> George? I, it gives me no pleasure, and I'm very reluctantly doing this, but I want to emphasise the points in my score come from the, the animation, which I thought in parts was fantastic, and the voice acting and the mocap. I thought it was brilliant. Four out of ten. Four? Oh, blimey. 
that's mm. low. If I was judging episode one alone, I probably would have given that a 7.5 because I, I generally thought that was a really good I introduction. Did. I really... <laughs> I really liked episode one, apart from the acrobatic zombie. Uh, I could forget. I could just about forgive that. But yeah, as it kind of went on, it sadly it got worse and worse. A bit like Vendetta, really. Vendetta started off quite well in the mansion, um, and then got progressively worse and worse. So, I I, I agree with everyone's comment. I, I think a six is more than fair, possibly even bordering on generous. If people say five out of ten is average, then I wouldn't disagree. I think about a seven. It's better than. Vendetta, it's on par, I think, with Damnation, in my opinion. So there we go. That does finish our big discussion on Infinite Darkness. I hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, it was uh, a fascinating insight into all elements of the CGI film, and hopefully there's lots to take away there. But we now finish our podcast with this edition of Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. 25 years of Resident Evil. Ten years of the Resident Evil podcast. Expert knowledge is needed in what we call the quiz. This is my only opportunity for a point this week. Uh, I just like to announce everybody that uh, this is zero points for me this week. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. We've talked about the games straying too far from the origins. This Resident Evil quiz. <laughs> We're now getting Spice Girls as the correct answer. I mean, it's time to quit. Welcome to Neptune Biohazard Quiz. Jesus. What? What a question is that? So welcome back, welcome back to our latest quiz. Welcome back, Alex, your second appearance in Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. You did very well last time. Jointly won it, I believe. We have five questions. I have to say, chaps, relatively easy questions this week, so I'm expecting high scores. So, if everyone is ready, question number one is from Infinite Darkness, so were you paying attention? And I purposely didn't say his name. What is the name of the press secretary that we see infected early on in Infinite Darkness? I mentioned him quite a bit in the podcast, but I purposely did not say his name. Question number two, also from Infinite Darkness. In what month in 2000 does Jason and his team encounter the BOWs in Pananistan? Question number three, because CVX Freak, you are here. We have a Code Veronica question, and this comes in from Jordan Osiris. What is the name of Alfred's secretary? Question number four, also from Jordan. What is the name of the FBC agent you find dead on the Queen Dido? How well do you know your FBC? And finally, question number five, I think everyone should get, what is the name of the blonde woman Chris and Sheva encounter and try to rescue in Resident Evil 5? There are the five questions. Join us after this when we'll run through those answers. Do you know where the root of terror comes from? I don't follow. 
It starts with fear. You just killed a sub full of people. Remember when I told you about terror? It starts with fear. You cultivate it. You watch it spread. Then you've got terror. You can tell them all about it at your court-martial. So welcome back. Let's see how well everyone has done. So question number one was, what is the name of the press secretary we see infected early on in Infinite Darkness? Star Stein, let's start with you. I have no idea, so I just went for Jerry. 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 Okay, interesting. Rumby. Was it Spacer or something? Spicer? Spacer? Spacer, Spicer. Okay. George Trevor. Absolutely no idea. <laughs> and he watched it yesterday. Yeah. Batman, did you know? Yeah, it's Spacer. I just thought it was a really funny name, the way he was saying it. Reminded me of Kevin Spacey as well. <laughs> uh, CVX Freak, did you get this one? I thought it was Spacer. That is correct. Yes, it is Secretary Space. I don't think we had a first name for him yet, but we may in the future. But So points round there to uh, CVX Freak, Batman, and Rombie. Good start. Good start. Here we go. Question number two is in what month in 2000 does Jason and his team encounter the BOWs? Uh, let's start with Batman. I think it's October. George Trevor? Again, I've got no idea. I'm going to just guess I'm going to say March. Rombie? Mm, I think it was October as well. CVX Freak? October. Stars Tyrant? October. Is October. Well done, people paying attention to the opening crawl, if you like, or the opening text subtitle. Well done. Points all round there, except George. Shame. Right. But I think George is going to be back on it. Waiting for that Code Veronica. He's a big Code Veronica fan. So what is the name of Alfred's secretary? Go on. I've been playing this game for hours. <laughs> on edge, trying to do a no death, no save run. And it's Robert Dawson. Robert Dawson. Stars Tarrant, you're a big Code Veronica fan as well. I did, but why have I written Scott Harmon? I don't know. Is that your answer? Uh, no, I think GT's got it. I've got the name wrong. Uh, my brain is confuzzled something. Wait, Scott Harmon is someone. Where's Scott Harmon from? He's the butler, isn't he? Fucking butlers and secretaries. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> Are you going for Scott Harmon there, Stars? I'll still go for Scott Harmon. Yeah, it's not bad to change it now. Rumby, what was your answer? I didn't know the last time. I just knew it was Robert something or other. Because so, it's the same name as me. Batman? Yeah, I had Robert Dawson as well. I guess I'm right then. <laughs> <laughs> CVX Freak. I had Robert Bob Dawson. Very good. It is Robert Dawson. Well done, everyone. <laughs> Sorry, Sean. Sorry, Sean. Would it be fair for me to say that I picked that question knowing that someone may probably pick Scott Harmon? He was in Code Veronica, but he was the earlier butler? Yeah. Or the butler of... The father? It's the, it's the file you read in the DIJ locker, isn't it, or something? Yeah, he's, he's the family butler, and he, he, he sort of scarpers, doesn't he? He does a runner. So points to CVX Freak, Batman, George Trevor, and I want to give half a point there to Ron before he's Rob, Robert. Question number four was, what is the name of the FBC agent you find dead on the Queen Dido? This is a lot more tricky because you'll need to have read hmm. the file. CVX Freak, did you know this one? Dario Baroni. Dario Baroni, okay. George Trevor? I've got no idea. I'd love to think there's, there are two Darios in the series. So, Sarren? I thought this was an elaborate trick question, so I went for Rachel Foley. Uh, Rombie, what did you put? I had no idea. I cannot remember. Batman? Yeah, it's Dario Barioni. He's the agent with the tape oh. recorder you find at the start of the ship. He's correct. There we go. A point to Batman and CVX Freak. Oh, blimey. I think we're going to see some full houses here. This will be a first. Literally, I had dinner with an Italian man named Dario yesterday. <laughs> and we did bring that up. 
But George, I, I know you didn't get it right, but you should be pleasantly surprised that there is another Dario in the series for you to, yeah. to enjoy. And finally, question number five. So what is the name of the blonde woman Chris and Sheva try to rescue in Resident Evil 5? Stars Taran. I think you're only ever given her first name and it's Alison. Romby? Yeah, Alison. George Trevor? I had no idea, no. Batman? It's Sherry. I mean, Alison. <laughs> And <laughs> uh, CBX Freak. Clearly, it's Ashley. No, it's Allison. <laughs> Correct, yes. So, points there for everyone, bar George. Wow, that is the five questions. Let's have a look at those final scores. And I can't remember this happening for a long time, ladies and gentlemen. We have not only do we have joint winners in the form of Batman and CVX Freak, but we have full houses, five out of five. Well done, gentlemen. You are this podcast winner with five out of five. Well done. Very good, very good. In second place was Romby with a very respectable three and a half. I have to say, normally that's a winning score, uh, but alas, not this week. Uh, in second place is Stars Tyrant with two and George Trevor with a disappointing one. There we go. So uh, congratulations to our winners today. Well, that does finish Neptune's Biohazard Quiz. Uh, join us next podcast for some more questions. we go so thank you everyone we are slowly wrapping up our podcast of infinite darkness thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed it coming up next we're going to take a bit of a break over summer because as you would have known we've done quite a lot of uh, recent podcasts with our village coverage so hopefully you will enjoy that as well so we're going to take a bit of a break but we're going to come back in the autumn uh, with episode 72 where we're going to be doing a retrospective look at the reports, and by that I mean Wesker's report, Wesker's report 2, Ada's report, Jessica's report. And the reason being is that this year is the 20th anniversary of that first Wesker's report DVD, which for many was the first time we ever had, especially in the West, some form of supplemental material. I can tell you from first-hand experience, my Wesker's report DVD is down to its scratched all the way because it, it was watched so, so many times. And was the only explanation as to how Wesker survived at the time. So um, it has a very dear place in a lot of people's hearts. And um, if you've been following a lot of the Japanese lore in particular, Wesker's Report 1 has been re-released a number of times. So we're going to have a retrospective look at the impact that it had, its subsequent revisions, the amazing Wesker's Report 2. Uh, we're going to be looking at Ada's reports as well and Jessica's reports from uh, Revelations because they add a lot of lore to the series. So it's generally going to be a kind of a, a quite a lore-heavy, kind of text-heavy podcast, which should be fascinating. We should be able to you know, share with, with everyone a bit more details about some of the forgotten elements of what these documents brought to the fandom. So on that note, I'd really like to thank uh, Alex, uh, aka CVX Freak, for joining us again today. Um, he's been a pleasure, as always, sharing us his experiences of the, the view from from Japan as well as as his extensive knowledge as shown in the, in the quiz today and uh, dedication to the RE series um, and if you haven't picked up already a reminder Itchy Tasty is available worldwide from all good bookshops uh, Amazon or uh, any ebook download service that you may may use well worth checking out but on that note I'd like to say thank you again it's goodbye from me Neptune goodbye from me Batman goodbye from me Stars Tyrant bye from me George Trevor goodbye from me Rombie goodbye from me CVX Freak 